All right. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and find a seat. Grab your seat, grab your seat. Yeah, just All right, my name's Andy. Uh, I'm not the normal preacher, but I assure you that I've been as thoroughly vetted as the two child care workers that we had up here <laughs> just a minute ago. So that should give you a ton of confidence in what you're about to ha- hear this morning. Um, all right, we're continuing our series uh, this morning uh, in the parables. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20. Our passage this morning is not really directly related to mission, um, but more indirectly, I would say uh, that this passage has everything to do with how available we are for mission, serving in the community, sharing your faith, being salt and light in your workplace, in your neighborhood. How available are you uh, for mission? Are you ready? And, and part of what the text is going to show us is that probably the number one detractor for us when it comes to this idea of being available for mission is this declaration of the heart that we so often make. Uh, it's really simple, but it goes like this. It's not fair. It's not fair. And to whatever degree or however that statement takes shape in your mind and in your heart has a lot to do with how available you'll make yourself for mission. The parable is in Matthew 20, but really the context for the parable starts in Matthew 19, where Jesus has once again delivered some pretty radical teaching. And uh, let's just say his disciples, as usual, have questions. They're confused by what he said. Now, most of you are familiar with the rich young ruler, uh, that story in Matthew 19, where this young man uh, has an interchange with Jesus about his commitment to the law of God. He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as, as he shows himself ready to defend his position on uh, how well he's kept the law of God, uh, Jesus tells him by laying uh, his finger on the chief treasure of his heart to go and sell all that he has and to come follow him. And the man goes away very sadly. Jesus, in the passage, it says, is sad. You can almost picture him with a sigh, with sadness, seeing this man turn and go. And Jesus turns to his disciples and makes this statement. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So I would ask you this morning, do you feel rich? Do you feel wealthy? And, and understand that when Jesus is talking about wealth here, he's not necessarily talking about material possessions. He's talking about a posture of the heart, the places in your life where you might feel like you've got it together, where you might feel like, hey, when I think about this area, especially as it relates to other people, I'm doing pretty good here. So it could be anything. How about your eating habits? When you think about the way that you eat, are you kind of proud about that? It could be, well, it could be your self-discipline, your exercise habits. Uh, it could be the way that you're raising your kids. You're so proud of them. When you look at what everybody else is doing, these 
These numbskulls out here, how they're parenting their kids, you know, I, you feel pretty good about it. It could, be, it could be your reformed understanding of the scriptures where you feel wealthy. It could be your theological commitments, your ministry, uh, your ministry team involvement. It really could be anything. Where, where do you feel wealthy? That, that place in your life where you sort of feel like, ah, but this is the one spot. I've kind of got it together. And Jesus, is what he's telling his disciples here is, be so careful about those places. Be very, very careful. Because wherever in life that you feel wealthy or you feel like you've got it together, that's a place where you will be tempted to be blind to your actual neediness. That place usually distorts your actual spiritual neediness and your availability for kingdom work. So here's Jesus in this moment. It's just him and his 12 disciples. Just as guys, they're huddled up. They appear available for kingdom work. And so one of them says, well, I've got questions about that. This camel and this needle and this wealthy thing that you're talking about. If that's the case, who can be saved? And Jesus makes this statement. With man, it's impossible but with God, all things are possible. So I want you to understand what Jesus does in that moment. He takes their question and he puts the focus on who? He puts the focus right back on God. They ask a question about them. Peter, in fact, comes back to that and says, um, but we've left everything to follow you. We've, we've, our, our wealth is our missional commitment and our faithfulness. Do you see that, Lord? So what's in it for us? We've left everything. What do you have for us? And Jesus says to him, but with man, this is impossible. But with God, so he puts the focus back on God. This morning, when we look at this parable, we're going to realize that one of the realities of this text uh, is that self-protection and self-righteousness are toxic to mission because wherever uh, we get this sense of wealth in our lives, wherever we feel rich, wherever we feel we have it together, that becomes a place where we can be blind to who we really are, who we really are, what we really deserve, and who God really is. And whenever we distort that picture of who we are and who God is, we begin to live lives of self-righteousness and self-protection. Self-righteousness and self-protection are mission killers. They will keep you on the sideline. They are toxic to mission. So here are these guys, and their cry of their heart is, it's not fair. It's not fair. And so Jesus gives them this parable. And so let's read it together. It's in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour... He went out and he found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. 
He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But, though, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Hey, so this is pretty straightforward, right? Like when we read that, I think everybody can get a sense of what's happening in the text. Matter of fact, I was talking to the kids uh, at the dinner table this week and I said, you want to know what dad's preaching on this week? Uh, let me just read this to you. And so as I read it to the kids and four kids, uh, they were sitting around and uh, at the end of it, nobody had a problem understanding what we just read. So I said, how, how did you feel about that? And my kids, all of them said, well, I'd like to be that last hour guy. That's a pretty sweet life. Oh, I... I know, but what if you were the first hour guy? Like, what if you got there at 6 a.m.? What if you're that first guy? Yeah, that'd stink. That's totally unfair. Can we go play video games? And that's pretty much how all our devotions go, and they were off. And so why, while I could see that cognitively they were understanding the way that this passage played out, there was something missing at the heart level around our dinner table about how this text is meant to impact us, how it was meant to impact the disciples that day. There's something that I need to be impacted by what Jesus teaches here about grace. And that's because there's the truth that within me, I am allergic to the generosity and the goodness of God towards other people. I have this aversion to grace and to neediness in my life. I hate it when God treats other people a way where I think they don't deserve it. I do. And to be honest, it can be really easy to mask that because all of you know the right things to say about grace. And you know the wrong things to say about grace. But the truth of the matter is below the surface, you and I all have an aversion to grace and to neediness and to the generosity that God displays in this text to those that we deem unworthy. So let's set up this parable. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, okay? Now who's the landowner? The landowner is God. So again, into the disciples' question, Jesus wants to put the focus right back on God. The landowner is central character in the story. The landowner has a vineyard, okay? And there's work to be done. So the landowner heads to the marketplace in verse 3. And the marketplace is simply the center of town. It's the place where all the agricultural day, day laborers would gather and get ready for the day to be hired. 
Now, I don't know exactly how this works in Carrollton, but where I moved from in Dahlonega, if you went to Home Depot or to Lowe's early in the morning, you would see a gathering of people looking for work for the day, looking to be hired, people waiting for construction workers to come and hire them and offer them labor for the day. And so that's very much the scene here in Matthew chapter 20. These agricultural day laborers, they came to work and they didn't work just eight hours a day. They didn't work 40-hour work weeks. They worked 6 a.m. sun sun up to 6 p.m. sundown, 12-hour days. And so when Jesus starts talking about the third hour and the sixth hour and the ninth hour, what he's talking about is the day starts at 6 a.m. That's hour number one, and the third hour is 9 a.m., and and the 11th hour is 5 o'clock, okay? It's one hour before sundown. Now, in this economy, if you were one of these day laborers, it meant that you weren't already connected to some kind of family estate or to uh, somebody that owned land, a landowner. It meant that, uh, and if you were one of those people, if you were an indentured servant or you belonged to a state, then that meant that every day you got up with the security of work and you would be provided for and somebody was going to feed you and take care of you. But if you were an agricultural day laborer, then then what you had every single day was a hope that somebody would notice you, that somebody would hire you, that somebody would choose you. You would be at the mercy of an employer who would come by. And so these men are desperate for work. They're totally at the mercy of whoever might come and hire them for work. And so here in the story, the landowner shows up at 6 a.m. and he's ready to take some guys to work. And he tells them, hey, look, I want to offer you a denarius. A denarius is simply the equivalent of one day's work, a wage for one day's work. Today in America, if you're a day laborer, the average day laborer here makes $10 to $12 an hour. So let's just say round number, these guys make $10 an hour. So Jesus or this landowner comes on the scene and he says, hey, I want you to come work for 12 hours and I'm going to give you $120. And they think this is a good deal. We've been chosen this is a good day. Our families are going to be able to eat. So they head off. But now things begin to get interesting, right? Because throughout the day, the landowner keeps going back. And as he goes back, he, he brings in more workers. And when he goes out to the, uh, the later shift, notice what he says. This is a disturbing pay scale. He says, this time uh, in verse 4, Uh, There's no promise of any money. He just says, I'll pay you whatever is right. I'll pay you whatever is right. And then finally at five o'clock with just one hour to go, he goes out and grabs some more guys. And this time he doesn't offer them anything. There's no promise of compensation at all. He says, why are you guys still standing around? Nobody's hired us. Well, come on, just come on. And so they head off to the vineyard to work. Now, Here's the offer, 6 a.m., $120, you get a denarius. The guy he hires in the middle of the day, I'll do right by you. The guys he hires at 5 o'clock, just come on, no promise of of reward at all. Now we get to verse 8 in the text, and guess what? It's payday. It's 6 p.m., time to settle up at the end of the day, and the landowner calls to the foreman. He says, bring everybody in from the field, and let's pay them, and listen to this, Let's begin with the last people hired and pay them first. All right. So they show up, and guess what happens? They get $120 
they get a denarius for one hour of work. Now, let's just let that sink in for a minute, okay? Imagine that you're one of these other guys who got picked at 6 a.m. Look at verse 10. It says, so when those guys came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. And what are you all thinking? Of course they did. Of course they were expecting to receive more, right? That's the only possible outcome here. If they work 12 compared to one, then they should deserve more. And if you're not feeling that right now, you're either sleeping or you're lying to yourself because that's the tension that's beginning to build. They watch the one-hour workers get what was promised to them for one hour, and they start going, oh, buddy, it is payday now. Like, we're about to get loaded. This is going to, we, we found the best landowner we could possibly find, and it is on. I mean, if they got what he took, for one hour, think about what we're about to get. And so, here's what happens. But each one of them also received a denarius. <laughs> now, when I read that, um, I am disturbed. This is a disturbing pay scale. And so now I want you to understand that this parable is not about how to run your business, okay? And it's not about principles for running our government. It's a parable that's meant to disturb you about two things, namely how you see yourself in the kingdom of God, and how you see the one that you serve. And so as we've read this, this parable, you're prob probably noticing within you a protest. There's a protest, an objection that we start to make in our hearts. And the men in this story had a protest as well. And so let's look at point number two on your outline, the protest in verses 8 through 12. And the first thing that we can notice about the nature of the protest is that it's a fairness issue. They say, it's not fair, starting in verse 11. When they received it, they began to grumble. Listen, these men hired last, they worked one hour. We've been out here all day. If you want to know how all this work got done today, it's us. Like, we bore the heat of the day. We did the heavy lifting. We did the work. It's not fair, right? Why, why would you give us $120? You ever have any uh, of your kids say something like this? Hey, it's, uh, you know, it's 8.30, it's bedtime. It's literally bedtime. And they say, can I get some ice cream? And you say, no, it's bedtime. You can't have any ice cream. Well, but so-and-so got ice cream. It's not fair, right? Or my son says, hey, Dad, uh, can I stay up and watch the second half of the football game, it's a school night. I say, no, you can't. Go to bed. You got to go to bed. And they say, but you're staying up. It's not fair. I say, I'm the landowner. Go to bed. <laughs> right? That's how it works. Kids, you ever feel like somebody's asking you to clean up something at your house, a mess that you didn't make? Or, or hey, uh, put those shoes away. They're not my shoes. You know, uh, uh, vacuum this, put those dishes away, put the trash out. I didn't do this. I didn't make this mess. It's not fair, right? It's this attitude of self-protection. And it's in those situations that what's behind that grumble, it's not fair, is we think we're not getting what we deserve. 
what do we really deserve? I think that's the question that Jesus wants to set in front of those disciples in that moment. What do you think that you really deserve? But the passage shows us it's more than just a fairness issue. The 6 a.m. early workers say in verse 12, when you pay them what you paid us, here's what you're doing. You're making them equal to us. You're making them equal to us. That's not right. That's unjust. And so they're crying out about injustice. But really this passage, this parable, is not about that. I mean, it's not trying to minimize injustice. There is real injustice in the world. But the reason that the parable is not about that is because mainly there has not been an injustice here. We're going to see what justice is really all about in a minute. But the protest of the laborers is revealing this. They've forgotten who they are. And so they think we deserve And one of the reasons that we live in self-righteousness and self-protection is because we've forgotten who we really are and where we really came from. So I got to go sit in on the discovery class on Friday uh, with all the new new members class, and Andrew was kind of walking us through the membership commitments that everyone in this church has to make to join the church. Do you know what the first commitment that we make together is? Do you acknowledge yourself, listen to this, to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? That's the first thing that we ask you. You you have to be, be able to say yes to that question. I am justly deserving his displeasure without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. How do you see yourself? Now, is that commitment something we just came up with out of thin air? Oh, man, that's, that'd be really good. Make sure that we remind them who they are when they come in. We just pull that up. This is one of the most fundamental anchors of Scripture throughout the whole Bible. The heart, the human heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah 17. Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. I loved what Andrew said in the uh, class. He said, hey, what if we just sin three times a day? Like, best case scenario, three times a day. And you live for 70 years. Three times a day for 70 years. That's 76,000 sins, right? What do we think we deserve? But the truth of the matter is we don't just sin 76,000 times in a lifetime. Our hearts are sin factories. We are sinning all the time. We're desperately sick and deceitful. Here's how Paul describes, here's how Paul describes in Romans how you, how you 6 a.m. workers, this is who you really are as you show up for your 6 a.m. work shift. There is no one righteous, no one not even one. No one seeks God. No one does good. Not even one. All have turned away. All have turned away. Now remember, this conversation is happening between Jesus and it's Peter who asked the question. Oh, Peter was the guy, you know, he was the most faithful. In fact, Jesus said this, like, hey, everybody's going to turn away. And Peter goes, not me, Lord. I will never turn away what is this? It's a delusion of merit. I mean, what does he think in that moment? 
He's pointing to something that feels wealthy and secure in his heart, his missional commitment. And what that does is it creates a distorted understanding of grace. He's forgotten who he is, where he came from. The focus is on his merit, what he's bringing to the table. And because of that, he too ends up running to self-protection. And suddenly he, he hears that rooster crow three times, and he's run away as well. One summer I was visiting uh, my dad in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, between my eighth and ninth grade year. Uh, it's 1991, and the local police in Milwaukee arrested this guy by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. And uh, as the weeks kind of went by and the, play, the case played out, you know, on our local news, it was like, oh, this guy's, this guy's, bad, this guy's a bad guy. Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, he was one of the country's most notorious serial killers. And so from 1978 to 1991, he not only killed and tortured and dismembered 17 boys, men, young men, but in some cases he cannibalized them. Two years later, he was sentenced to, I'm sorry, in 1992, he was sentenced to life in prison, uh, and he was beaten to death by a fellow inmate two years later. Now, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but before he died, Jeffrey Dahmer repented of his sins. Jeffrey Dahmer put his faith in Jesus Christ, and he was baptized <clears throat> in prison. He became a voracious Bible reader, and he was mentored by a pastor every week. Jeffrey Dahmer actually became the assistant to the chaplain in his prison. <clears throat> and those who knew him said that his life had been completely transformed by the love of Jesus. And so that means that on November 28, 1994, when Jeffrey Dahmer was killed, and he passed from this life into the next, and he was received into heaven, he received the same verdict that you and I who are in Christ will receive when we get there, this verdict of not guilty. And in fact, it means if any of you are a not in Christ this morning, if you're not in Christ this morning, then the verdict that he received will be not guilty, and the verdict that you will receive when you stand before the Lord will be guilty. And by all other measures, your life is radically better than Jeffrey Dahmer's life. But you being first will be last, and he being last will be first. It means that when Jeffrey Dahmer died, he heard the verdict, not guilty, righteous. Righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ which covers you. And he was embraced as a child of the king. He was brought into the family of God. Now honestly, how do you feel about that? How does that sit with you? I would say that's an all-out assault on any area of self-righteousness that you and I could possibly muster. If you have an allergy to grace, then your legs and arms are itching right now. I mean, this is, this is entitlement when I assert my rights based on my record. You see, the protest here comes out of a sense of entitlement. It's when I look at my record compared to Jeffrey Dahmer, and I say, how could we possibly get the same thing to which Jesus could reply, what did you just acknowledge to be true in your membership class? I thought you just said, justly deserving of God's wrath. Did you mean it? What are you deserving of? Could Jeffrey Dahmer not make that same statement? Yes, but he doesn't deserve 
the mercy like I do. Listen, this parable is so close to another parable, the parable of the lost son, right? The prodigal son who ran away, he squandered the father's inheritance, he, he comes back home and the father rushes out to meet him, he embraces him, he kisses him, it's the royal robes, it's the fattened calf, it's the party to celebrate, the lost son is home, but what does the older brother do? He refuses to come into the party. He hangs back. He looks at that with disdain and bitterness and irritation. The, older, the, the father goes out to him and says, hey, come in, come into the party. And what does is, what is the older brother do? He points to his years of service. He points to his faithfulness. He points to his eating habits. He points to his self-discipline, his exercise. He points to his reformed commitments, his theological doctrines, his ministry accomplishments, how he's raising his kids. He points to all of his own merit, and it keeps him outside of the party. And so entitlement begins to fuel envy. Envy is when I begin to compare myself to others. I begin to covet what they have. I attempt to tear them down so they don't have it. You know, if the 6 a.m. workers had been paid first, none of this would have been a problem. He promised them a denarius, they would have got it, and they would have taken off, and they would have never known. When does it become a problem? When they start comparing themselves to what these other unworthy, undeserving people have gotten. That's how envy works in our life, too. So Time Magazine wrote an article a number of years ago called, Why Facebook Makes Us Miserable. Think about envy, what happens when you're on Facebook. And here's what the uh, article said. As we scan friends' pages, hoping to feel loved, supported, and important, at least in the lives of people we like, but skimming through the photos of friends' lives, successes can trigger feelings of envy, misery, and loneliness, according to the researchers from two German universities. The scientists studied the lives of 600 people who logged time on the social network and found that almost half the people felt worse emotionally and psychologically after leaving the site, especially if they viewed other people's vacation photos. (laughs) What do we do? We look at that stuff. We look at people here. We look at Facebook. We go, good grief. I feel like they're always on vacation. I mean, are they at Disney every other weekend? This is ridiculous. But here's the truth. The minute that we look at others and see what God has generously given to them or provided for them, we feel robbed. We feel it's unjust. We think, I deserve more. We have delusions of merit, a deep-seated self-righteousness. But the truth of the matter is this, that most of the time, the reason that we are doing these good things, our best works, is because what we really want is the good life that these good things produce. It doesn't have anything to do with God. We just want the good life, so we do these good things. And so when life doesn't go that way for us, and it doesn't line up, we get ticked off. It's not fair. Now, if you're struggling to see that in your heart, here's the application for the week. Follow your grumbling. Look at the places in your life where you're tempted to complain. You won't want to do that, but I encourage you to chase it down this week. Follow your complaints, and where you have complaints, you'll find your entitlement and your envy. If the landowner hadn't chosen them, if he hadn't chosen those 6 a.m. workers, where would they really be? They would have had no work. 
no provision. But the truth of the matter is that Christ called us to himself and we were waiting for someone to notice us, to choose us. We were just like those, all those people in the marketplace and God graciously placed us in his vineyard. We don't deserve a thing. All right, last point. So the landowner, after their protest, begins to help them to see the point of the parable. The point of the story is that uh, not only does this parable reveal that we don't know who we are, but it reveals that we don't really know who we serve, who we serve. And so there's a series of three questions by the landowner that help us understand who we really serve. I love how the landowner answers right off the bat. Um, He says, friend, friend, I'm not being fair to you. There's grace even in that, friend. Think about the way that he's talking to these snotty, fussy little kids, and he answers them like this, friend. They've, They've started to reveal their heart, and Jesus is tender with them. There's grace even in that. You know, at our dinner table, if, if one of the kids is complaining uh, about the food, I don't go, oh, dear son. Oh, dear daughter. I say, eat the food. I'm the landowner. I bought it. She cooked it. Don't complain. There's no generosity in my heart. But Jesus is gracious, even with self-obsessed disciples. He says, I get it. I understand what you're saying. But the truth of the matter is you've forgotten who you really are and who I really am. And so here's the first question. I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? And so what that question points to is that we have a master of trustworthy integrity. This is a God who keeps his promises See, the heart issue when we get upset and accuse him of of unfairness is that we want to relate to God on our preferences rather than his promises. I prefer to be comfortable. But is that what God promised? Did he promise us comfort for the laborers in the vineyard, for us workers in his kingdom? But look at all those people. They're so comfortable. I want to be comfortable. Jesus says, I haven't promised that but I've made some good promises to you and I'm trustworthy. I I keep my word. I offered you a denarius. Here it is. And this God is trustworthy and that's what we need. If we're gonna live lives without self-protection, we need to know that he's trustworthy. He keeps his promises. What did the disciples want? They wanted assurances and specifics about payday. And what does Jesus promise instead? Well, in Matthew 19, he promises the renewal of all things. He says, one day you'll be with me. And know this, that no one who has left mother or father or brother or sister or fields or anything will not be, that they'll be paid back a hundred times and eternal life. So here's this promise that he's given them. And the reason that they can have confidence in their kingdom work is because this landowner This Jesus has integrity. Second question that the landowner asks. He says, take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Don't I have a right to do that with my own money? This is a way of God saying, you're the servant. 
I'm the landowner, and I am a master that has absolute sovereignty. Do you know when we tend to give our greatest protest to God about the fairness of things? It's when we start to live like owners rather than servants or stewards. We, we don't want him to have the sovereignty. We want it. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my life and my money and my kids and my family and my possessions? And so whether it's possessions or family or health or life or vocation, we think we're the landowners. And we fail to remember that he's the one with absolute sovereignty. Listen, if, if you want to live a life without self-righteousness and self-protection, this is the, these are the anchors that you need. You, you don't want your preferences running the show. You want the promises of God and that he is faithful and has integrity and that he has absolute sovereignty. There are going to be times when you wish he was not sovereign, but then are there going to be some dark times when you are so thankful that God is on the throne? This is our master. And then the last question, are you envious because I am generous? Verse 15b, are you envious because I'm generous? We serve a master full of extravagant generosity. That's what that question points to. And I want to say this very clear. God is not fair. There is nowhere in the Bible that it says that Jesus, that God is fair, but God is just. Fairness and justice are two really different things. God is not fair. He is just. And so when he asks this question, are you envious because, because of my generosity? He's pointing to a merciful God. I want you to understand, and you need to think about this, when he goes out and he chooses those workers at five o'clock, who is left at Home Depot at the end of the day? Like, who is left? It's everybody else has been chosen. These people are last. Who, who would have that have been? Like, if you show up to work and you, you get to pick who you want to come work in your vineyard, and you leave people behind, and they get left behind all day long. I mean, these are people that can contribute almost nothing, right? This is the old man, the old man at Home Depot who's desperate. His hand is shaking, and you hire him to come paint your house? Why would you do that? That's going to make a total mess of the situation. This is the handicapped. It's the disabled. It's the people that you like, I don't want to hire that guy. He comes in my vineyard, he's going to steal grapes. This is the riffraff. This is the last choice. Nobody wants these people. But I want you to see what, what God does. He grabs these people, the one-hour worker. He brings them into his field, and he treats them like they are employee of the year. He gives them top salary. He brings them in front of everybody else, and he gives them the same thing. It is amazing generosity. Amazing generosity. And we would stand here and say, and begrudge him of that? No way. He is not only just. He's not only fair. He's above fair. He, he is merciful and gracious and generous. Listen, if we could pull back Part of our problem is we see ourselves as the 12-hour worker. But if you could just pull back the curtains of your heart and we could set out here in front of everybody all of your thoughts and motives and heart 
and intentions and actions and choices for a lifetime, what we, what we would see is we are far more like, spiritually speaking, that one-hour worker. We're even less than that. He at least showed up. Sometimes we can't even show up. And yet Jesus gives us this mercy. It's amazing. So he says, are you envious because he's generous? Are you glad for his mercy? Here's the reality that has to hit our lives or else we'll continue to live entitled and envious. And it's so hard to say, it's so hard, it's easy to say this, but it's really hard to get this at the heart level. And it's this, it's this idea that why would you ever, not the question, why would you ever let Jeffrey Dahmer in? But when the question begins to happen in your heart to say, not Jeffrey, why would you let me in? Then there has started to become a movement in your heart that says, all that I have is grace. It's grace upon grace. The call to be in your vineyard, to work in your field, it's grace. My ability to work there, it's grace. The reward is grace. I have no rights. I don't deserve a thing. And if not for you, intersecting my life, intervening in my life, I don't deserve a thing. I'm glad to be last. I just get to be in the field. And when that reality hits home for you, then self-protection and self-righteousness just begin to fade away and our protests become praise. Lord, thank you. And our protests become pleas. Lord, have mercy on me. Help my unbelief. And that's why Jesus ends the parable this way. Whoever is last shall be first because his disciples standing there are steeped in merit. And they're steeped in their own works. And they're tempted, just like the rich young ruler and just like me, to hold on to areas where they feel wealthy, like they have something to contribute. And instead, they must become saturated in grace. Because if we choose to follow Jesus, we're going to the back of the line. Are you ready to go last? Are you ready to follow him into the mission? To give up? self-protection and self-righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, uh, it's so easy for me to read that passage and to say, to read the part where you say, do I not have the right to do what I want with my own money? And my heart says, no, you don't. That's, uh, that's my gut-level response so much of the time when I think about how generous you are and how well you love and the type of God that you really are. I confess this morning bitterness. I confess a critical and judgmental spirit towards my brothers and sisters. And I confess that that grows out of a heart of self-righteousness and self-protection. But Lord Jesus, you have come because you care about both justice and generosity. And on the cross, both were magnified. And so Lord, I'm not getting what I deserve, but in Jesus, you're taking what I deserve. So thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have taken what I have deserved 
and for all of those who are in Christ. And you make this offer to us this morning to come and to receive, to come without money. That was what we sang. And I pray that our hearts this morning would hear this offer of grace and that we would come again with great joy and that we would be freed up to work in your vineyards wherever you're calling us here. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.